Grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. My wife and I, we grew up an hour south of Nashville. So in the early days of us dating, I decided one night I was going to try and impress Amber by taking her downtown. All right, big city, bright lights, and I needed all the help I could get, okay? And I was about 18 at the time, so I'd, I'd only been driving a couple years. I wasn't super comfortable on the interstate, and we were coming into Nashville where all the merges and lane changes start happening, and when I realized that, I needed to change lanes. So I checked my mirrors, and I put on my blinker, and I moved over. But there is one thing that I failed to do that you are always supposed to do when changing lanes. Anybody know what it is? Yes, I did not check my blind spot. And it wasn't until I changed lanes that I realized there was a guy on a motorcycle in my blind spot. And I had just barely missed him. And he was understandably uh, a little upset. So next thing I know, he rears his engine. He drives right up next to Amber's window. And he's a big guy. He's got dark sunglasses and a skull cap and a leather jacket and has this mask with flames on it. That was before masks were a little more normal. And he is uh, making some, some really nice gestures towards us. Um, and I'm totally freaking out. I'm thinking, God, please don't let me die on a date. That'd be so embarrassing. <laughs> and so I say to Amber, I say, Amber, just look, just ignore this guy. Just look, don't even look at him, okay? But out of the corner of my eye, I see that Amber is not ignoring him. She is staring right back at him, smiling and waving like this. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I knew, okay, I got, I've, really, I've got to marry this girl. Um, that's when I knew. So I pulled over, proposed. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, you know, ever since that day, ever since that happened, I still think about it. I always make sure to check my blind spot when I'm driving. But we don't just have blind spots in our cars. We also have blind spots in our lives. There are often things about ourselves that we don't see or maybe just don't see accurately that others see quite clearly. We have particular habits we don't even realize until we get married, of course, and our spouse is so nice to point it out. You know, I think one of the reasons God created marriage was so that uh, your spouse could tell you how loudly you chew your food. Um, When I got married, I discovered that I walk like I have dumbbells on my feet, like I just walk around the house. It's unintentionally as a blind spot for me. But there are also more serious things about us that we're unaware of. Areas of our lives where we're weak or susceptible to Satan's attacks or maybe places where we've compromised in our values. In fact, one of the scariest aspects of sin is its blinding effect on the one caught in its snare. Sin is deceitful. Satan is known as the father of lies. So you've probably experienced this personally like I have. You do something so wrong for so long that the guilt fades away. You compromise until you're comfortable and then one day things just blow up and you think, what happened? It didn't used to be this way. What happened to my, my love and joy for God? What happened to my family? See, all of us are susceptible to blind spots. We're, we're fallen sinners, especially in the, the culture and the world where we live in, where we're bombarded by temptation. But there is a way that we can guard ourselves from this problem. As we change lanes and move through the traffic of life, there is a way to check your blind spots, okay? And that's what I want to share with you this morning. So last month, if you've been with us, we began walking through the book of Revelation verse by verse. 
They said, Micah, it's your first day. You know, take it easy on you a little bit. Throw you right into Revelation. It's so nice of them. No, it's great, but this book we, we know, it's, it's literally a revelation. It's a vision from Jesus given to the Apostle John for the church. And boy, does John get a revelation. I, mean, I, I try to imagine sometimes like what that was like, just experiencing that. I remember as a kid, uh, one of the first books of the Bible I read in its entirety was Revelation. Because I wanted to know how the world was going to end. In fact, doing student ministry, I find that the number one book most students have read is Revelation. Why is that? Because Revelation is one of the most fascinating yet difficult and often debated books in the entire Bible. There are passages that are exciting and scary and some that would make for a great movie. And sadly, they've made not so great movies about this book. But, but it's riveting stuff. And it's also kind of confusing at times. If anyone tells you that they've got the book of Revelation all figured out, they are lying. And I can guarantee you they're probably trying to sell you something. There are some significant challenges we're going to deal with as we traverse this book. So I want to make this clear from the outset. The primary point of Revelation is not to tell us how and when the world is going to end. Now, there's lots of information about what we can expect as the events of the end times unfold. But the primary point of Revelation, the reason Jesus showed all this to John, is not so we can know how and when the world is going to end. If that's what you want, you can read books upon books filled with all kinds of theories and speculation about who the Antichrist is and what the mark of the beast is. But if that's what you're showing up for on Sunday mornings, <laughs> I'm really going to disappoint you, okay? Because I, I got 30 minutes, and I'm not going to use my 30 minutes to speculate and unlock the secrets of the end times. You've seen those shows on TV. But what I am going to do is attempt to preach this book with its primary purpose in mind. I want to focus the attention and time I have on the central message Jesus gives to the church through John. Here it is. The primary point of Revelation is this. Fear not. Jesus is on his throne. That's what it's about. That's the reason, the purpose of this book. So while we're going to delve into some fascinating things, we'll talk about 666. We're not going to skip anything. We're going to see that this book was written for an early church that was struggling. And they were struggling in some very similar ways to how the church is struggling today. And the message that Jesus gives them in this letter is what enabled them to persevere through persecution, to, to keep their hope alive, to impact the lost world for him. And that is a message we need too. So, man, this book is so important for us right now, and I'm excited to journey with you. We know we, we started with the seven letters to the seven churches, and today we come to the third. It's a church to the letter. It's a letter to the church in Pergamum. So let's look together at Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And sometimes we're going to do this. I'm going to ask you to stand and honor the reading of God's word. We may not always do that, but I think it's a good reminder for us about the place of God's word in our church. So why don't you stand with me as we read through this passage in its entirety. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. In order for us to understand what is going on here, we got to get our bearings a little bit. Pergamum was one of the most impressive cities in Asia in this time period. It was built on a cone-shaped hill, a thousand feet in height, so you can imagine how it kind of dominated surrounding area. One of the most noticeable features of Pergamum was that at the top of the city, it had several sacred and royal buildings. There was a great altar to Zeus, along with other temples and places to worship pagan gods of the day. But what's most important for us to understand about Pergamum is that it was the hub, the official center in Asia for Roman imperial worship. Ooh, what does that mean? Well, it means that Pergamum was the first city of Asia to receive permission to build a temple dedicated to the worship of a living ruler. So the emperor, he, he proclaimed himself to be a god, so much so that he wanted to build a place where people could literally come and worship him. And so he did. That was Pergamum. And it's pretty arrogant, right? That's kind of the way things worked in Rome. And it wasn't really optional. So we can only imagine what the Christians in this city were up against. And, and I think that background sheds new light on the opening of this letter. Look again at verse 12. It says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. What we'll see in these letters is that Jesus introduces each letter to a church by stating his authority to speak to them. And he does that in a unique way for each church. So why does he say here the words of him with the sharp two-edged sword? Well, think about it. The sword was a symbol of power and authority, especially when it came to authority. The sword symbolized the empire's authority to execute judgment. Living in the capital of emperor worship, that kind of authority would have been really clear. We're going to see in a minute this, this church had actually had one of their members executed by the government's sword. But Jesus says, hey, I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know it may seem with all these big fancy buildings and all this power that Rome seems to have. You know, I'm the one with the real authority and power over life and death. See, not even the great Roman Empire, not even the mighty Caesar who thought he was God can stand against Jesus. That's what he's saying. And then in verse 13, he begins to encourage them, as he does in most of his letters. He, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. <clears throat> He says, guys, you're in the thick of it. Uh, you live where Satan's throne is. And there's some discussion about what exactly he means by Satan's throne. And I'm going to step out on a limb and say, this is not the land of Oz, okay? This is not a good place. 
This is a dark place. This is the seat of Satan's power and activity displayed through the emperor worship we talked about. So this church is kind of in the belly of the beast. They're surrounded by satanic cult worship, and yet Jesus says, you hold fast my name. You didn't deny my faith even when Antipas was killed. We don't know a lot about this Antipas guy. We know he was someone recognizable in the church, possibly a leader in the church, and he was martyred by the state. Let's don't just blow past this. Let's take a minute, just imagine this for a second. Sometimes we, we think it's difficult to be a Christian in 2020 America, and I'm not saying it's easy, but can you imagine if one of the elders or deacons of Blue Valley Baptist Church was publicly executed for their faith? How would we react? Would you come to church the next Sunday for worship? Would you drop your kids off at Awana? Would you be afraid? Would, would you deny the faith? The church of Pergamum didn't. They, they kept the faith. And they're a model of faithfulness for us. And we know this is still happening in the world today. There, there are parts of the world where Christians go to church in secret for fear of being arrested, tortured, even killed for their faith. So these believers around the world, past, present, future, they should motivate us to remain faithful no matter what comes. So Jesus commends the church and then he follows his usual pattern of then calling out the church for something they're struggling with. He exposes their blind spot. Look at verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what's, what's going on here? Who is Balaam and, and Balak? Well, we got to go back to our Old Testament to understand what he's referencing. Balaam was a false prophet who was sent to curse the people of Israel. And he had a pretty interesting encounter on the way. God actually caused his donkey to talk to him people say the bible's not interesting and if god ever makes a donkey talk to you uh you might be in trouble i think it's safe to say but balaam he, he still goes on this trip he ends up conniving with the king of moab who is balak to have the women of moab seduce the israelite men so they would turn away from god and worship baal and that's exactly what happened okay cool story but what does that have to do with pergamum well, Jesus is making a comparison. He's saying, hey, do you remember what happened with Balaam and those Israelites? That's happening in your church. That same old trick is being played on you. There are some among you who are following the same false teaching and forsaking God for sexual immorality and idolatry. And what was going on was that some of these Christians decided the best thing to do with the pagan culture around them was to compromise. So they were engaging in these pagan feasts, which were dedicated to false gods, and they were engaging in sexual behavior that was sinful. And you can imagine how this probably happened. They're being persecuted and having a hard time. One of their guys gets killed, and some of them think, look, guys, why don't we just try to fit in? We don't actually have to believe all this stuff. I mean, there's nothing wrong with just eating a little bit of the food and just sleeping with some of the people. It's, I don't want to die like our boy Antipas did. I mean, let's just try and compromise, okay? And so they did. 
they compromised on their convictions for the sake of comfort and safety and acceptance. They developed a blind spot, and Jesus calls them out on it. But he doesn't just call them out. Look at this in verse 17. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Man, this is not the image of Jesus we're used to seeing on like Sunday school classroom pictures or the little kids' picture books. Jesus warring against people with a sword from his mouth. We're going to see a lot of that, Jesus, in Revelation. This is Jesus threatening judgment. What's, what's up? I mean, I thought Jesus was loving and he loves the little children. He's got the whole world in his hands, right? What's going on? <laughs> But what we must realize is that sometimes the most loving thing Jesus can do is call us to repent. You see, what Jesus wants most is for his people to worship him and remain faithful to him and become like him. And for him to allow us to just stray away to worship other gods or to compromise would be like letting your child play in a busy street. I live right off of 151st Street, which is kind of a busy road. So one thing I do not do is open up my back fence and tell my daughter to go color with chalk in the middle of the street. In fact, if I were to catch her playing in the street, I would be angry. I would have to correct her. Why? Because I love her. I care about her safety. And therefore, sometimes I have to discipline her and call her to change and See, the same is true of your heavenly father. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. He is jealous because he loves you. He will not allow his people to stray too far away. He he calls us to come back, to repent. He wants us to find satisfaction in him and him alone. So he calls the church in Pergamum to deal with their blind spot. He calls us to do the same. So as we close, let me just share with you two ways we can deal with our blind spots. Number one, we must remain vigilant against compromise. Let's go back to that uh, driving analogy. You know, when you first start driving, you learn defensive driving. Anybody else learn that? This is being watchful and cautious, right? Looking out for potential accidents. It's hands on the wheel. Where? Ten and two. Don't give me that nine and three stuff. Ten and two, right? Your seatbelt's buckled in. Don't turn that music up too loud. I remember the insurance agent talking to me as a teenager. They don't turn the music up. But as you learn to drive, you might get a little more comfortable with it. You might become less cautious, less defensive, lean the seat back a little bit. And that's when accidents happen, right, when you let down your guard. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. Sometimes we get too comfortable. We begin to slip a little here and a little there. It's like the old song we sang this morning, one of my favorites. It says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. As sinful people, we have a sinful disposition to move away from God. So Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, watch out. There is no greater danger than a Christian who thinks he's strong. You are not strong. I'm not strong. We're weak sinners, and we desperately need Christ's strength in us. And the moment you forget that is the moment Satan dreams of. 
We've got to remain vigilant against compromise. And notice it's not just remaining vigilant against obvious sin. Like sometimes we look at people who have really messed up and we're like, man, I cannot believe they did that. I would never do that. But you know, no one wakes up one day planning to go to a pagan feast and worship another god and sleep with a temple prostitute. Sin is a slope. It's a slow fade, a momentary thought, a simple mistake, a small choice here and there that builds. And it starts with compromise. So is there an area of your life where you're compromising with the culture like the church in Pergamum? You may not be sinning explicitly or engaging in some terrible activity, but is there compromise? Have you compromised with the kind of content you consume on the internet or TV? Have you compromised by being overly obsessive and angry with politics or other arguments in our culture? Have you compromised with your work schedule to the neglect of your family and church? Have you compromised with the busyness of life and forsaken your time with God? See, the command from Jesus is the same for each of us, no matter where we might compromise. He simply says, repent. And that comes across as a harsh word. We think about the preacher, repent. But that word simply means come back. Come back. Turn around. And see, none of us are beyond the need for repentance. In fact, Martin Luther famously said that the entire Christian life is a life of repentance. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, I'm certainly not compromising anywhere in my life. I'm good. I'm here to tell you that you may have the biggest blind spot of all. Because your blind spot is your own self-righteousness. It's the same blind spot that Jesus charged the Pharisees with, which is not the group you want to be compared to. And I'll be honest with you, like I'm looking at my own life this morning. I'm seeing areas where I struggle with compromise. Sometimes we we think that people who stand up on the platform are, are literally above the struggle. I just want you to be the first to know, you have hired a messed up sinner as your campus pastor. Can't believe you did that. But man, I I got struggles. I've got areas like the church in Pergamum where I I allow sin to creep in. And and like the church in Pergamum probably felt, I feel helpless sometimes. You ever feel that way in the Christian life? I just can't can't get this right. I keep struggling with this same sin and I I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to be the person God's called me to be. And I, I don't do the things I know I should do. I mean, how do I remain faithful when the world is going crazy? Where's the good news? You and I are not in this alone. The same God who calls you out in your sin is the same God who gives you the grace you need to overcome it. So the second last thing we need to do with our blind spot is this. Embrace your provision in Christ. And we see this in this last verse, verse 17. He said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the promise that Jesus always closes out his letters with. And this might be the strangest part of the letter. Jesus talks about giving hidden manna and a white stone. What is he talking about? Well, you may remember manna is what God gave the Israelites to satisfy their hunger as they traveled to the promised land. And the white stone is much greater mystery, one that scholars disagree on. But 
we know in the context of the Roman Empire, one thing I found interesting, there's this ancient custom they had at their athletic games. The, the victor who won the games, he was given a white stone with his name on it. And that stone served as his ticket to this grand awards banquet where he would be seated in glory. So what Jesus is saying, don't miss this. He's saying, you have everything you need in me. He's given us hidden manna, which is his sustaining grace that is new every morning and carries us through each day as we wander through the wilderness of a pagan culture. He himself said he's the bread of life, and just as he broke the bread on the night before he was crucified, his body was broken on the cross for us, giving us salvation and eternal life. And he's giving us a white stone. He himself entered the competition on our behalf while we sat in the stands. And he was victorious, rising from the grave, defeating sin and death. And as a result, Romans 8, 37, get this, it says that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. We, who did nothing, are more than conquerors. Because we didn't earn that white stone, but it's a free gift for all who would believe in him. And don't miss this, on that white stone is a new name. Just as Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Peter were given new names to symbolize their transformation, when we trust in Christ, we become new. We too are changed. And one day we will be granted entry into the banquet, into the heavenly feast where we are seated with Christ forever and ever. So have you embraced your provision in Christ? If you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Embrace him for the first time today. Even though you may be a sinner like me, you are. The Bible says if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Because his death and resurrection has given you everything you need. So embrace Jesus today. If you're already a follower of Jesus, are you continuing to embrace your provision in Christ? You didn't earn your seat at the table and you can't earn your stay. We are saved by grace alone, and now we walk by grace alone. So continue to daily find all you need in Christ because he's given us everything we need. So friends, as we remain faithful in our own Pergamum, we're vigilant, knowing that we have blind spots, we're sinners, and we have an enemy that knows how to exploit those. So we're cautious, we're on guard, trying to grow in holiness, holding one another accountable, but but we also remain hopeful, knowing that our Lord, our Savior, is the one with the two-edged sword, the one who is victorious over all these things, the one who has given us everything we need in himself. So we say with Jesus, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.